Movies by Minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Howdy, and welcome to another episode of the Silverado Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed western, Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. I'll be your host all this week. You can call me the Professor. John P. Sisk, Arnold Professor of the Humanities Emeritus at Gonzaga University, recounts in The American Scholar, Summer 1987. Quote, I once saw in the southeastern corner of the Villa Borghese in Rome an abbreviated version of an American amusement park. It had bumper cars, spaceships, and live Shetland ponies whose dung no one had bothered to collect. There was also a coin-operated mechanical horse. I watched it galloping in place as its small and excited rider pulled a toy gun from his holder and fired at his imaginary adversary, perhaps a Bulgarian desperado who a few days before had shot the Pope. It occurred to me that in time he might become one of those motorcycle cowboys, urban rustlers actually, who dart in close to the crowded Roman sidewalks and pick off women's shoulder bags. In any event, he took me halfway around the world to my own cowboy country, in a way that nothing else in Rome did, not even the great equestrian statue in the Piazza del Campidoglio that represents a bareheaded Marcus Aurelius who, had he worn a sombrero, might have ridden with John Wayne in Red River. No one is as enthralled with the legend of the cowboy as a child is. The young Roman was lucky. Unlike so many American youngsters, he would have to grow up to discover the discrepancy between the legend and the reality. I was spared that painful discovery by becoming a part-time cowboy myself. At the age of 10, I spent a good deal of the summer on horseback carrying water to harvesters and driving cows in from pasture. For a dozen years thereafter, I spent the summers on the wheat and cattle ranches of southeastern Washington doing all those things that cowboys do, and more besides. Between summers, I was back in the city doing such things as city people do. As a result, I grew up with a perspective on city and country that was different from that of most of my contemporaries. In fact, I got to be rather smug about my ability to see past the stereotypical distortions that city and country took to be the truth about one another. John R. Erickson makes it clear in his good book, The Modern Cowboy, that all cowboys are part-time cowboys. That is, they don't spend all their time superintending cattle on the wide-open spaces where the coyotes howl and the wind blows free. End quote. The thing about Silverado is, are there any cowboys in this film at all? The myth-making of the American West tells us that all the settlers of the Wild West were diligent folks who put in day after day of hard work to tame the land and tame the natives and build this great country that is still full of diligent folks who will put in day after day of hard work because we get stuck on the myths we make to explain ourselves. We get stuck on some imagined, shared backstory that makes us all Americans and it makes it so damn easy to turn those with whom we disagree into the antagonists of our lives and the cause of all our problems. Nico Capozzi, Medium, 11th February 2018 Quote, The age of the historical cowboy has long gone, yet the symbolism of that period still thrives today. The legend of the cowboy is synonymous with American identity despite being rooted in mostly fiction. Myths are popular methods for learning and understanding our history. In American culture, the cowboy story is of particular note. The cowboy's doings and goings, 
real and imaginary, include a considerable portion of our national ethos. His qualities, both good and bad, consistently receive attention in film and television and other cultural forms. This phenomenon is ripe for analysis. In the end, it is clear the cowboy story is more fiction than fact, and that is just fine. End quote. Is it fine? Is it fine that at the tail end of the Cold War when we had our cowboy actor of a president, our western heroes were outlaws? Really, weren't our cowboy heroes outlaws more often than not? They tended to do what was quote-unquote right, but often operated outside the law, especially local law, because in many a western that badge that makes one the local authority is as easy to wear as it is to put on, literally. The real problem with the rugged individualist American believing they can proclaim authority as easily as they might pin a star onto their lapel is that we all fall for whatever we fall for as far as belief systems and then turn against anyone different when the going gets too tough. See, strictly speaking, the cowboy doesn't like fences. I wrote in regard specifically to the 2003 film Open Range, which stars, among others, a much older Kevin Costner than we've got here, in the Groundhog Day Project, Day 698. Time to settle these free grazers. Quote, it goes right back out into the open after just a few minutes in town. Oddly, this makes it stand out from a lot of westerns. So many westerns for decades have centered themselves in the town, dealing in the civilizing parts of said town in conflict with forces of chaos from outside, often in the forms of cowboys, outlaws. The conflict here is more between ranchers and cowboys. The former has fences, barbed wire, so relatively new in the 1880s. They close off the land where cowboys previously would roam freely, letting the cattle graze a location, then moving on. This film is structured the opposite of other westerns in that the dangerous forces are coming out of the town, not going into it. Like in Unforgiven or The Quick and the Dead, it's the town that is corrupt. It's a strange sort of angle on the western myth. At some point, yes, we put out fences, tamed the west by sectioning it off. Coming so recently and so late in the course of the cinematic western, Open Range seems more like a lament for the freedom of its title, rather than a celebration of its taming. Boss boils down the morality, I guess, of this story. Quote, Stealing cows is one thing, but one man telling another man where he can go in this country is something else. End quote. I want to put a political bent on it, like the Western was inherently conservative and now it's turning progressive, except a literal setup here, wanting to roam the land free, while fences mean progress is a strange mix of conservative wanting to go backward to a simpler time and liberal wanting to be free. Maybe it's just not as simple as politics. Maybe the Western has always represented a struggle between the civilizing forces and our natural impulses toward the open range, doing what we want to do. Perhaps the shift in some of these later Westerns doesn't represent an urge to move backward, but a sadness that we just can't. We can go visit. Go for a drive, perhaps, through the Arizona and New Mexico countrysides. But for this world to work, most of us just can't live out there anymore. Backward just ain't much of a thing. End quote. By the time Silverado came out in 1985, the Western itself had mostly gone away already. It still rears its head from time to time, some mythic rodent popping up from its hole, except then a car full of teens go speeding by on their Ford Roadster and you got the ridiculousness of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull instead of the ridiculousness of Last Crusade, Temple of Doom, or Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Except Indiana Jones isn't the best reference to throw out here because it's as full of romanticization of the quote-unquote cowboy as most westerns are. It's just at a different time frame. Plus, I don't mean to suggest that Silverado is necessarily a lesser western. Objectively, it is. But I don't mean to suggest that. But that might just be because subjectively, I grew up with this western. I have a soft spot for it, even if there are parts of its plot that I forget every damn time I watch it, like Mao's father getting killed. And I wonder every time why Jeff Goldblum's character doesn't have a bigger role than he does, given his introduction as some sort of 1800s dandy pimp. Action films set in the present in the 1980s were inevitably focused on a lone wolf hero or a duo. Outside of maybe only Pale Rider, westerns in the 80s. I'm thinking Silverado, Young Guns, Young Guns 2 even as far as Tombstone, being so much more palatable than Wyatt Earp, were what modern superhero films copy a lot of the time. Too many heroes, too many villains, and it all gets a bit muddled in the third act sometimes. But by then, we're invested. And what else can we do but keep watching and dream of the better thing we think existed before? And that clunky transition back into the political behind us, I've got to admit, we're not supposed to get political on a show like this. Movies by Minutes podcasts are short-lived already. It's hard to build an audience or get a sponsor when your show will last less than a year, and next time an audience might hear you, you'll be talking about something else altogether. But it was a conceit of the Groundhog Day project, and a conceit I still hold to, that the films we pay attention to are interchangeable sometimes inasmuch as they say something about us as people, as hosts, when we choose to talk about them. And every film tells us about the world in which it was created. Silverado was very much a film of the American 1980s. Entrenched evil taken out by the good guys who might not be the best guys, but they're the guys we've got to get the job done and might makes right, and if at first you don't succeed, carry two guns or a shotgun maybe. And when you're gunning for Sheriff Cobb, or Teasel, if you get my reference, as long as he's more ruthless than you are, you get to be the good guy even though for the most part you haven't been that good. How about a little more Capozzi? Quote, America is replete with icons, the most famous of which is the American cowboy. We all know the image well. The cowboy on the range with a six-shooter on the hip, the horse, and the approaching ride off into the sunset. He symbolizes America's desire of a never-ending movement westward, itching for adventure, resolute on manifest destiny. He is everywhere. He is in film, literature, art, television, and various other cultural forms. Importantly, Cowboys were not created in America. In fact, the tending of cattle as a profession has its roots in Europe, particularly in Spain. The American cowboy learned the trade by emulating Spanish and Mexican settlers. It was during this time such words as rodeo, buckaroo, chaps, lariat, lasso, latigo, remuda, and even the word ranch itself became synonymous with the cowboy. The story of the cowboy begins as the Civil War ends. After the war, Cattle were in considerable demand, and Texas was the home of most cattle ranches. Texas would eventually be the leading supplier of beef for most of the country. Happening simultaneously was the opening of the frontier and the shift west for settlers. The cowboy's job was to herd and transport cattle from ranch to market. As such, and as the beef demand rose after the Civil War, the demand for the cowboy as a laborer also rose. Coupled the promise of work with the desire for perceived adventure, Many ex-Confederates from the southern states rushed west to start anew. The historical cowboy also included many former slaves, vaqueros from Mexico, and new immigrants. 
the distinction between the historical and mythical cowboy is difficult to delineate. According to Walter Prescott Webb, a frontier historian of the early 1900s, cowboys as myths can be described as a man that, quote, lives on horseback, as do the Bedouins. He fights on horseback, as did the Knights of Chivalry. He goes armed with a strange new weapon which he uses ambidextrously and precisely. He swears like a trooper, drinks like a fish, wears clothes like an actor, and fights like a devil. He is gracious to the ladies, reserved towards strangers, generous to his friends, and brutal to his enemies. He is a cowboy, the typical Westerner. End quote. The cowboy's home in American literary tradition has taken root for over a century. Owen Wister's book, The Virginian, published in 1902, was the first of its kind in its treatment of the cowboy. The antagonist of the book is considered the first stereotypical presentation of what we now know as the cowboy character. The Virginian is above all a love story, but it digs deep into the dynamics at play between competing ranchers and their laborers, the cowboys. Wister found success because his book's cowboy character, the Virginian, offered readers a hero, an American knight to be glorified. End quote. Glorified, for example, by the pretense of missing his horse but not his property, as it were, as Payton smiles and explains his backstory. Me, I'm riding along, minding my own business. Four cowboys come by and we decide to ride together. Friendly as can be. I always figure you might as well approach life like everybody's your friend or nobody is. Don't make much difference. We get out in the middle of that frying pan and suddenly everybody's pointing their gun but me. Guess they admired my horse. Cut to Emmett, though this monologue seems to be going fine. Only a few Forrest Gump-level bon mots in the mix. Emmett. Looks like that's not all they admired. Payton. Off screen. Yep. My whole rig. Emmett laughs. And then we're back on Payton for some more monologuing. The camera giving us a slow zoom because isolating Payton in the campfire light wasn't enough. I don't care much about the rest, but I surely will miss that bay. Capozzi explains, quote, In the movies, there is always the implication that any Westerner can function as a cowboy if he does not have more important things to do, which he generally does. In any event, insofar as the Westerner was a cowboy, the horse was as important to him as the gun, in fact, as well as an image. Certainly no mode of conveyance ever gave a man such a sense of being comfortably and masterfully at ease in his environment as the horse did. To view the world from the horse's back when you are young, is to view it from an Olympian height. A lone horseman coming into view at a mesa's rim is like the appearance of a god. Perhaps a benevolent god who can't save a man in little more than his underclothes from succumbing to the elements, as Emmett is for Payton, but back to Capozzi. And as for spine-tingling sense of speed, nothing compares with the pursuit of a steer while on the horse at full gallop. When, years later, through the fortunes of war, I became a troop commander for the Air Transport Command and had my own jeep and driver, I experienced nothing like the mounted cowboy's sense of total command. To understand this is to understand why horses, in western movies, Tom Mix's Tony, Gene Autry's Champion, Roy Rogers' Trigger, The Lone Ranger's Silver, Ken Maynard's Tarzan, could be as famous in their own right as the horses of Homer's superstars. Only the rustlers and the robbers of banks and stagecoaches had anonymous and usually uncurried horses. Interrupting again. Because as much as Peyton claims to care for that bay of his, the film doesn't bother to name it. Even in movies where the cowboy hero wins the girl and is obviously on the verge of becoming a husband, you are more likely to remember the horse's name than the girl's. 
This means that such movies, unlike Shakespeare's romantic comedies, are generally only half-hearted celebrations of marriage. At heart, they are less about the winning and civilizing of the West, which means making it safe for women and children, than about keeping it as a preserve for the unfettered male and his noble steed. End quote. Peyton continues, At least they didn't kill me. That was right considered, I thought. They were laughing when they left me. Thought it was real funny. I walked for a little while, but it was no use, so I gave it. That's all there is for Men at Eight of Silverado. I've been your host, Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of Such Movies by Minutes podcast as Mandy Sucks Minute, a podcast fueled by hate, and Cock and Bull Movie Talk, and co-host of Two Minutes About Time, Pump Up the Minute, and Five Minute Arrival. You can find links to these and more at lemmingdrops.com. I will be your host next time as well. In the meantime, you can find the Silverado Minute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, silveradominute.com. Or follow the show on Twitter at SilveradoMXM, or join the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Saloon, on Facebook. Join me here again next time on the Silverado Minute. Yeehaw! Welcome to another episode of the Silverado Minute. Say that again. That was weird. <laughs> Why did you pronounce Silverado like that?